Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Joshua chapter 6 contains what has to be the most famous episode in the entire book of Joshua, which is the fall of Jericho, when the walls of Jericho come tumbling down. It's appropriate, maybe, as we contemplate the most famous scene in Joshua, that we begin by contemplating one of the most famous scenes in Raiders of the Lost Ark. I am referring, of course, to the great epic sword fight that takes place between Indiana Jones and this random swordsman that he meets in the marketplace. Probably you're familiar with this scene. You may not know that originally this was intended to be an epic choreographed fight between a man wielding a sword and Indiana Jones wielding his whip. And they had worked out all of the choreography. It was going to take three days to shoot this scene. And it was going to be wonderful. It was going to be the best sword versus whip battle that had ever been captured on film. But Harrison Ford, the actor who played Indiana Jones, was suffering from dysentery. And so he went back over the script looking for ways to cut down the shooting time. And so when it came to this scene, he asked Steven Spielberg if there was some way that they could just streamline things. And so sure enough, the swordsman emerges from the crowd. He waves his sword around menacingly. And you expect that you're about to get some epic conflict. Indiana Jones pulls out his revolver. And he just shoots the guy. It's the end of the scene. Strangely, what was meant to be an epic fight ends up being kind of an opportunity for for laughter, strangely enough, in the context of the movie. And in Joshua chapter 6, something really similar happens. Because the strength of Jericho has been played up in a big way. This is an impressive walled city. I mean, this should be a difficult place for Israel to come to grips with, but it seems like the battle is over before it's even begun. The walls come tumbling down, and Israel doesn't really have to do much of anything. There's really no fighting involved. It's even more surprising, more one-sided than that battle between Indiana Jones and the swordsman. So I want to talk about that great victory, that famous victory, but there's an aspect of the victory that I want to spend some time on that we don't usually spend time reflecting on. Yes, the walls came tumbling down, and that was a wonderful thing to behold. It certainly would have been a wonderful thing for the people of Israel to witness and be a part of, but the people of Israel were not allowed to enjoy the spoils of the victory. So this great victory is won, But then the people are actually prohibited from benefiting from it. They are prohibited from enjoying any of the plunder from the fallen city. Place yourself in their shoes. Having wandered through the wilderness for 40 years, living a nomadic life, your idea of home is a tent, and now suddenly you see this walled city, and inside those walls are everything you could possibly want. There were houses there, there there were riches there, there were luxuries there that you've never dreamed of. And when the city falls, it would make sense that all of those things would now be yours, that you would be able to enjoy the life that these people have been living. Everything you want is on the other side of the wall. 
And then God says it isn't for you. That would be a hard thing to hear. Now, in Joshua 6, there's an amazing plan for the fall of the city. There's a plan that's interesting, but there's also a prohibition. And it's the prohibition that I want to spend time thinking about. But first, let's talk about the plan. Now, the plan for the conquest of Jericho involves a lot of sevens. As you read through the details, over the course of seven days, the people of Israel, led by seven priests with the Ark of the Covenant, will march around the city. There are armed men around the Ark, sort of like a bodyguard, but this is essentially the people marching around the city. And they're going to do this once a day for seven days, but on the seventh day it changes. On the seventh day, they're going to march around seven times. And at the end of the seventh march, the, the seven priests are going to blow their trumpets. And when the trumpets sound, the people are going to shout, and then the walls are going to come tumbling down. That's the plan. Sevens, sevens, sevens. And it should make you think of something. Earlier, we were reading the Ten Commandments. And in the fourth commandment, the instructions on the Sabbath day, uh, there is a discussion of the rationale for keeping the Sabbath holy, which is grounded in creation, the days of creation. For six days, God worked on creation, and on the seventh day, he rested. And that's the pattern that the Bible then applies to structure human life, the way that we live. Now, interestingly, the work of creation, which had that seven-part structure, is echoing, is shaping what you might look at as the work of redemption. Right? This is the work of deliverance. This is the conquest beginning, where the people who have been delivered out of Egypt are now being brought into the promise. And as they enter the promise, as the work of redemption of Israel begins its, its uh, completion, its fulfillment, now as they enter into that conquest, the days are shaped just as they were in creation. The work of redemption and the work of creation have a kind of echo. Just as God rested on the seventh day, the people of Israel will enter into their rest on the seventh day. And sure enough, that's how it goes. We look at our text, which is verses 15 through 20, kind of an excerpt of the larger action We read that at the seventh time, the seventh time they marched around the walls, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And then skipping a few sentences, So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. I said at the beginning of this series that we would be looking for these echoes, these signs of redemption, these signs of salvation, what it means for us to enter into the promise. And here we see this work of redemption beginning. As they're entering into the promise, as the conquest is beginning, it looks a lot like creation. And that's all well and good, except for the prohibition. Because the people are entering into the promise, they are taking the city, but they don't get to enjoy the spoils. 
here's what the text says. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take away or take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. Now, if you served a God who, without firing a shot, could make the mighty walls of Jericho fall flat on the ground, you might reasonably assume if our God is this powerful, we can have whatever we want. The world is ours. Nothing can be denied to us. If God is with us, no one can stand against us. It's all ours. We can take what we want. And yet here it turns out that's not the case. That's not the case. The things behind the walls are devoted to God. They're devoted specifically to destruction. They are not for the people who have conquered the city. They're not allowed to partake in these things. Now, there's two aspects to the prohibition that we need to deal with, two things we need to deal with. Um, Everyone in the city, apart from Rahab and her family, is put to the sword. Just after our text, we'll read in verse 21, then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. So the glory of the falling of the walls of Jericho is followed up by a slaughter, which would turn your stomach to witness. And we need to deal with that. We need to confront what that's all about. Earlier in Joshua 2, we looked at Rahab's deception, and we talked about whether or not it was okay to lie, an ethical dilemma. Well, what we see happening in Joshua 6, I think it would be an understatement to say there's an ethical dilemma that is proposed, so we need to confront this head-on, and we will do that, but we won't do it this morning. I promise we will do it, but we're going to take a whole sermon to look at this question of devoted to destruction and and what this signifies and and what problems it represents to us and what we can learn from it. Um, We're going to dig into that next time. This time, this time, I want to look at another aspect of the prohibition, the consequences of the prohibition, because the prohibition also means that though the city is given to Israel, they do not receive the spoils of the victory. They don't receive the spoils, the the rewards. If you imagine the luxuries, the riches inside that place, certainly in the eyes of the people who suddenly find themselves in the city, it must have seemed marvelous, the kind of thing they hadn't seen before. Maybe their parents would have told them stories about what Egypt was like, but this generation that had grown up in the wilderness, they would have experienced nothing like this. Everything that they wanted was there for the taking. Everything they could have imagined, every hope that they might have had could be fulfilled for the spoils of this victory, and yet God says, this isn't for you. This is not for you. But what can we learn from that? Because I think we find ourselves sometimes in similar situations where everything that we desire is on the other side of the wall, on the other side of the obstacle. And it seems as if our wishes, our desires could be fulfilled if we could just have what's right there. And God says, that's not yours. It's not for you. I'm actually keeping that from you. 
And that can be a hard thing to hear, a hard thing to deal with. So what is Jericho telling us? The victory, and the reason why the victory is is one the way it is, the reason why the spoils are off limits to the people is that this victory is an offering. This city is the first fruits. We talked earlier about the way tithes and offerings, we, we give to the Lord off, off the top the first fruits. This is something similar. The people are foregoing the spoils and offering them up as an offering to the Lord. They belong to him. And that means something. When you give the spoils to God, you show that you have trust that there will be future victories to come. Being willing to forego the spoils of Jericho means the people are trusting that the conquest will continue, that God will indeed bring them into the land as fully as he has promised. We demonstrate by foregoing the spoils that our trust is in him, not in our own strength not in the riches that we might gain from winning the battle. Here's the thing. If you want to understand the ways of God, if you want to start understanding the ways of God a little bit better, you need to begin by realizing it's not about you getting what you want. Most of us come to God when we come to him with wants, and the reason we're there is we want those needs satisfied. Most of us, when we pray, it's difficult. When it's easy, it's because we want things so desperately that we can't not pray. And so we turn to God as one who can give us the things that we want, the things that we desire. But one of the lessons of Jericho is, is if you want to understand the ways of God, you have to see that the ways of God are not just about you getting what you want. The Israelites at Jericho were part of something larger than that. They were part of something that was about more than just self-fulfillment. It was about more than just making their lives good or comfortable or even happy. They were part of something much greater than that. The victory that they had won was not for their own fulfillment. It was for something else. There was another purpose behind it. It was a victory won for God's glory. If you look at the victory that God wins at Jericho, there's some design to this. There's a reason why it happens the way it happens. It demonstrates some things. One of the things it demonstrates is who is responsible. The way the city falls makes it very clear that the reason for the fall is not the generalship of Joshua. The reason for the fall is not the strength of the army of Israel. The reason the city falls is not because after 40 years in the wilderness, these people are, are, are lean and hungry. They're hardened by, by deprivation and they are ready to conquer. That's not why this battle goes the way it does. It is only because of God. Only because of God. Just as the Ark of the Covenant had led them across the Jordan, it leads them around the city. And all they do is shout and the walls come tumbling down. God did this. The Ark of the Covenant leads, showing that God is in control. Priests are in the vanguard. Their horns trumpet the glory of God as a sign of victory. The walls collapse when the people shout. It's a miraculous thing that just as the sound of the people shouting, victory occurs. All of this shows the power of God. 
All of this shows, we might, might talk about it this way, it shows his sovereignty. It shows his power over all things. Usually God works through means. Occasionally he works without them. And this is one of those instances where God miraculously brings about victory, not through human means, but outside means, his own power. And one of the ways when we talk about the the theology that we stand in that, that comes out of the Reformation, one of the ways that we distinguish it from other ways of seeing Scripture or seeing God sometimes is we say, uh, like Reformation theology emphasizes the sovereignty of God, the sovereignty of God, the power of God to rule and reign over all things. And and clearly this victory shows the sovereignty of God. But I think there's actually a better handhold than just sovereignty. If you want to understand this way of thought about God, this way the Reformation has of seeing God in Scripture, it's not just sovereignty, it's glory. It's glory. It's not just God is so powerful that he can do whatever he wants. It's that God, the all-powerful God who can do whatever he wants, does whatever he does for his glory. For his glory, the highest end behind the work of God is to see his glory fulfilled, to see himself glorified. That, that is the difference. Seeing God as one who acts for his own glory above all things. You start thinking like the Reformation thinks when you start seeing that God works not just for your happiness, not just for your own fulfillment, but for his glory. That he has deeper, higher reasons that have nothing to do with with whether I'm happy or fulfilled or uncomfortable or comfortable. None of that. All of it pales in comparison to what he is actually doing. What it means is, is like those Israelites, we all find ourselves part of something much larger than ourselves. That when you begin to glimpse it, it it overshadows everything else. You feel very small in comparison. Part of something larger. If you want to understand how our lives bring meaning, bring fulfillment, how our lives are meant to be lived, you have to ask yourself, how does this glorify God? How does it bring glory to God? How did Jericho glorify God, this great victory? How did it glorify God? Now, as I said before, by winning in such a miraculous way, he shows his power, and by giving the people this city, this fortress, the way that he does, he also shows his goodness. He shows that he intends to be faithful to the promise that he's made to them. He doesn't make them work for it. He gives it to them. He gives it to them, showing his faithfulness. There's also judgment here, though, on the Amorites, the people who live within. And in that judgment, as we'll talk about next time, there is a justice of God that is demonstrated as well, that gives him glory as well. By taking the first fruits, God glorifies himself by showing that his people have confidence in him, that they have trust in him, that they rely upon him. You can see if you meditate on this victory, the ways in which it glorifies God, despite the fact that the people who were there on the ground didn't get to benefit from it directly. They didn't get the stuff from the victory. And yet my guess is, 
For most of them, not for all, we'll see next time, not for all, but for most of them, what they experienced after this great victory was not a sense of loss. They didn't walk away muttering, why didn't we get to have the spoils of the victory? Because they had been part of something much greater than that, that put those personal concerns in another category, in another context. Sometimes, even our thwarted desires glorify God. It's easy when our desires are fulfilled to give God the glory for it, to be thankful for it in the moment where we get what we wanted, and we're like, thank you, Lord. It's much harder to be thankful to see the glory of God when we don't get the things that we desired. Much harder to find it there. And yet, even our thwarted desires can glorify God. If you don't keep yourself away from the spoils, in this case, you are tainted by them. You are corrupted by them. Verse 18, it says, if the people don't keep themselves away from the spoils, they will bring trouble on themselves. Sometimes God denies us the things that we long for because they will turn our hearts away from him. Because we will bring trouble on ourselves if we get what we want. When we sacrifice the spoils, when we don't get the spoils, we also show that our treasure is in heaven. When we can glorify God despite the fact that we're not getting what we want, we show that what we treasure is in heaven, not here. In the life to come, not in this life. Sometimes God denies us what we want so that we can love him more in that way by valuing what we ought to value. Sometimes God denies you what you want right now, but he gives it to you in time. And this is the irony, that God does oftentimes give his people what they desire in time, and yet the waiting is torture. And and we're angry the whole time that it wasn't given to us when we wanted it, when, when we thought the timing was right. But glorifying God after a victory like Jericho, even though you don't get to taste the spoils, glorifying God even then is an acknowledgement that you know this is just the beginning. That there will be other strongholds to fall. There will be other fortresses. There are riches beyond these that God intends for us. We will give him the first fruits trusting that he has what is good for us in store for us. I'm not saying that God's will is in conflict with your desires, and therefore it has to be one or the other. Either God's glory will be accomplished, or you will be personally fulfilled, and we have to choose. Because obviously the pious choice is to be miserable for the glory of God. That's not what I'm saying. There's no conflict there, necessarily. Um, As we'll see in a moment, actually, I think there's a great harmony between those desires and the glory of God. What I am saying is that God is focused on something higher, something broader, fuller than just your fulfillment. And that maybe you should be focused on that higher thing too. The moment in this victory that I would like to live in for just a little bit 
to, to transport ourselves into is such a brief moment that in the narrative, there's almost no space between the events. But just think about the moment between the trumpets and the shout. The people have been told to march in silence. It's hard for people to gather in silence at the best of times, but they've been ha- having to march around the city in silence for days, which is a hard thing to do. And then finally, finally, after the seventh march on the seventh day, the trumpet blows, then the people can shout. And Joshua turns to the people and he tells them to shout because God has given you the city. The city is yours. The city belonged to them, had been given to them before they shouted. They shout when they're told the city has been given to them. So think about that moment. All of that silence, all of that marching, all of that following the inscrutable ways of God, not understanding what it was meant to be, how it was meant to work, any of that, but finally, to reach the moment where you're told it's yours. It is yours, and now you can shout. That shout is an expression of faith. But the shout is response to something they've been told, which is not yet true in reality. At the time that Joshua says to them, the city is yours, the walls are still standing. Just as earlier in the chapter, God says to Joshua, I've given you the city, and yet the city is still standing. Right? They're believing that what they're being told is true. The author of Hebrews says, By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. That means that the shout was a kind of celebration. Right? The shout was an act of worship. It was people shouting in faith that what they'd been told was true, that the city was theirs, that God had given it to them. The shouts was a claim to a victory they believed was already won, but actually came to fulfillment afterwards, before their very eyes. That moment between the trumpet and the shout, it's where we live as Christians. We live in this this tension that we sometimes talk about as the already and the not yet. We live as people who can look back in Scripture and see a testimony to promises kept generation after generation. But not all of the promises made in this book have been delivered on yet. And so some of these things have already happened. Some of these things have already been given. And yet the things most precious, the things we hope for most, are not yet in our grasp. That's where we live. And the question is, how do you live there? How do you live there? And I think in this moment at Jericho, we we see the answer to that. The way you, you occupy that space between the shout and the fall of the walls, between being told the city is yours and entering into the promise, the way you occupy that time is to worship. Jesus says, the city is yours, and this life is your shout. You hear the victory that is proclaimed in the gospel. You believe it, and you worship him. The shout is an act of worship above all. And we're constantly told that worship does nothing. That the emptiest sentiment 
that you can express in the face of any tragedy is, is, oh, my prayers are with you. The idea of having a worship service and nothing is accomplished in that. Even, even within the church, we'll often talk about the act of worship as a means to an end. Worship is something we do to recharge our batteries. Worship is something we do to uh, be strengthened so that we can go out into the world to do the real work, achieve the real victories, right? The way we think about worship is often as, as something secondary. And yet... I would argue that worship is the thing we're made for as human beings. And worship is the thing we're told we'll still be doing once all the battles are won, all the victories achieved. We will still be worshipers. And it makes sense because what worshipers do is give glory to God, give glory to the God who made them. As we say in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. We're made to be worshipers. Jericho teaches us how wrong it is to think that there's, there's nothing accomplished in worship. Because everything at Jericho is accomplished in the worship of God's people, giving glory to him. In salvation, God glorifies himself in Christ. When Paul in Philippians talks about the goal of the gospel, the way that God will glorify himself through the gospel. He talks about Christ's exaltation this way in Philippians 2.9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. At the end of time, every knee shall bow and every tongue will shout that he is Lord, that he is Lord. And the only victory that matters, the task that has been given to you is to worship. And the irony is worship is exactly what you were made for. We deny it. We see other Motives, other things that would bring us fulfillment. But if just once you lift your eyes up above the level of of self-obsession to see the larger work that God is doing, to see the scope of the glory that he's bringing to himself in the work of creation and redemption, then those lesser things that seem so fulfilling don't seem so fulfilling anymore. It's not that there is no fulfillment for us. It is that there is a deeper fulfillment, a deeper happiness, if you will, in recognizing that the real satisfaction is found when we pray God's will be done. In that, you find something more than fulfillment. In that confession, you find rest. The battle for rest is won through worship. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.